Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, friends, good morning. And if I missed you at the introduction, my name is Tim, and I'm the minister here at Eastside, and it's a joy to be with each and every one of you. And we, as a staff and a leadership of Eastside, we want to know that you're here. And the only way that really we can know that, that it's you out there is for you to fill out our check-in form, our online check-in form. Take a minute, let us know who's viewing alongside of you, um, if you have any prayer requests, what's going on in your life. If you're a guest with us, this gives us uh, a chance to reach out and just say hello and welcome to the church community. Well, if you've been journeying with us for the last couple of Sundays, then you know that Two Sundays ago at the baptism of Jesus, the, the yearly observance, liturgical observance of the baptism of our Lord Sunday, we, we noted that at the end of the text, Jesus, after he's baptized and his ministry is, is sort of publicly inaugurated in that moment, in those, in those moments, he, he then goes straight out into the wilderness where we are told that he spends time with God in prayer and reflection and meditation, but where also we learn that he's tempted by evil. He is, he's pressed and his maturity is, is pushed up against by the world and by the, the strains and realities of life and of what would be to come. So Jesus went into the wilderness and that kind of began our, our journey that we are on together right now that we've, we've named Mosaic, Reflections from the Wilderness. We as a liturgical community, but also just a human family right now as we're coming off of 2020 and we're still living in the midst of a pandemic and all this sort of political and social unrest in our own country, many of us can resonate with the idea, with the sense that that we still feel like to, to much, to much of, of our lives, we are living in a, a season of wilderness, of disorientation, of journeying, of kind of not sure where we're at. We know we're not there or, or, or where we once were, but we're not sure where arrival may be. So we, we're seeking in this time to join with Jesus in the wilderness. Last Sunday, we looked at the ancient Hebrews in their, in their beginning of their wilderness journey after they were liberated from Egypt. And this morning, we turn to kind of a, a, a metaphorical wilderness journey. We turn to the experience of the ancient prophet Jonah, prophet Jonah and to this short book we find in the Hebrew Bible of this fascinating experience that this, that this man has in relationship with God and with humanity and, and sort of his own wrestling through that experience of the wilderness as Jonah clearly kind of had his own sort of expected path and way that, that things in life and his ministry were going to unfold when God very quickly sort of throws a wrench into things and then continues to push Jonah and to push him 
to try to see how he may grow and how Jonah may see the world in a new and in a different way. This morning, so that we can address kind of the whole narrative of the book of Jonah, we're going to read the first chapter and, and then be, kind of begin the sermon, and then later I'm going to finish the story and, and we'll finish up with some reflection on that. So friends, I now invite you, wherever you may find yourselves, to embrace a posture of receptivity as we encounter Holy Scripture, and as I read, I invite you to listen for the Word of God. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it. For the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before me. But Jonah set out to flee. Jonah fled to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid his fare, went on board, went with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the, the ship threatened to break up. The mariners were, were, were afraid, and, and each one cried out to their own God. They threw the cargo over that was in the ship to, to help lighten the load. All the while, we're told that Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship, had lain down, and was fast asleep. The captain came to him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us so that we don't perish. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Jonah replied, I am a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done for the men knew that Jonah was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then he said to them, what shall we do to you that, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. Jonah said to them, pick me up, throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet, quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this great storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard, trying to bring the ship back to land, but alas, they could not, and the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, O oh Lord, we pray, do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood, for you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleased you. After they prayed, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. 
But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Creator God, God of earth and sky and sea, on this morning, I ask that you would take these words that I have prepared and that you would speak through them and were necessary in spite of me. And as I preach, God, I ask that the words of my mouth and the collective meditations of all of our hearts across time and across space would indeed be found good, right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, a rock, God, a redeemer, God, our hope and savior. All of this we pray in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Well, I'm sure that at least a few of you remember from a few months ago, there was kind of this situation that, that happened in our United States. And it was a situation that led some a good amount of writers and sort of public thinkers to reflect on this old German word, and I'm going to hope that I remember to pronounce it correctly, Schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. I didn't, I didn't do it right. I psyched myself out. Schadenfreude. And it's this word which, which means that that essentially it reflects one of the darker of human emotions and psychological experiences. This experience of essentially having some amount of pleasure at the, the misfortune of others, specifically of other human beings who we might consider our enemies or rivals or people whose behavior we feel like makes it the case that such and such should just be coming to them. They deserve it. Schadenfreude is a word whose intent is to describe that strange yet, yet probably somewhat universal and disturbing human experience where people take delight in the misfortune of others. Delight in the misfortune of people despised or hated, or people who are simply not liked. And, and I begin here this morning because I think the more that I've studied this text and looked at Jonah, I find that it gives us a pretty direct lens into what's going on in this story. And I also think that it gives us a pretty direct sort of read on why this this book of Jonah is so important in the canon of Scripture and why it's actually really important for us as a people of faith to be wrestling with in our world today. Because Jonah is one of these books that, that, that has a pretty complicated reception history. Historians, theologians, various pastors, and, and people throughout the centuries have had different ways of interpreting it and seeing it and understanding it from our Jewish roots to the Catholic sort of theological perspective to Calvin or Augustine to Luther. There's all these ways that people have read the book of Jonah throughout the ages. And I'm not 
super interested actually in a lot of these sort of like finer nuanced readings or, or interpretations that, that folks may have of the book, especially for this morning, because I actually think that Jonah is one of these pieces of scripture with a pretty awkwardly clear and poignant message that's sort of hard to miss. You have to be kind of looking so hard into this text that you see right past the big picture, the, the, the point of it. And I think it has a lot to say to the modern world and to the modern Christian world and religious world and political society that we live in. And arguably a lot to say about our own relating to schadenfreude. And as we see by the end of the book of Jonah that we'll look at in a minute, the, the reversal of this schadenfreude. The book of Jonah, it's, it's about a Hebrew prophet. And just a quick reminder, if you're not familiar with the prophetic tradition in the scriptures, prophets are not people whose job it is to see the future or to predict the future with some sort of spiritual superpower. That's not what prophets are in scripture. Sometimes prophets do speak to the future, but it's not because of, of some seeing ability, but it's because God gave them a message about the future. And that gets to the point of a prophet. Prophets are simply the mouthpieces of Israel's God for the people, for whoever the recipient might be. They are the people who go to listen to the divine and then carry that message to whomever God asks them to. They weren't people that had some sort of... of superpower that, that allowed them to see into the future, but they were a people whose job it was, and vocation it was, to open their hearts up, to hear the word of God, and then to offer it to the right recipient. And, and here's the thing about most of the Hebrew prophets, this role, this vocation, normally it took place within the the boundaries of their own people. Normally Hebrew prophets were speaking to fellow Hebrew people. Oftentimes those in power, kings or, or, or powerful religious people. And, and oftentimes about the way in which powerful people were relating to their power for selfish reasons or for, for reasons that were not in sync or in line with God's will for the people of Israel or for the world. And oftentimes it was these prophets' jobs, roles, to go tell these kings or people in power what Yahweh had told them. And it was hard and uncomfortable work that they had to do. And, and oftentimes prophets received a beating or had their lives taken from them because they spoke the truth that God had given to them. But most of the time, the, the truth that the prophets were speaking were, were to those within the tribe, within the family within the people of Israel. It was Israelites speaking to fellow Israelites. Which I think is noteworthy because if you look at the, the beginning of our reading this morning, you note that that's not the case at all. Nineveh is definitely not a part of Israel. And the people who live in Nineveh are certainly not Jewish and certainly do not 
subscribe to the, the Jewish God, Yahweh. They are a people probably a, a similar to those on the boat. If you noticed when they were freaking out, they all began to cry each to their own God, which, which is probably indicative of what was to be in Nineveh as well. Like Israel was monotheistic and they, they held to this view of the one God, the creator of the world, but the rest of the world was generally polytheistic. Various, various deities in these various tribes and groups and nations. And, and Jonah has been asked to go from this Hebrew monotheistic culture into the city of Nineveh to make a proclamation outside of their religious tradition. God asked Jonah in verse 2, go at once to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out, against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now, there's a lot that could be said here, right? But from Jonah's perspective, I think that an argument about sort of, sort of the ridiculousness of what God is asking Jonah to do could be made, right? Because if you do a little bit of historical, archaeological study, you learn quickly that Nineveh was one of the largest cities in that time period of ancient history. It may have actually been the largest city for a while. And it was the, the, the sort of power center, the power brokerage of the Assyrian Empire, this sort of ruthless empire in that age. And these were people who were ruthless enemies of Israel. They were bigger, they were stronger. And this is not a society that gives any care or any heed to what a tiny, a tiny country like Israel's tribal God, Yahweh, what, what, what that God might think about Nineveh in the Assyrians' large empire. They wouldn't, they wouldn't care, right? From, at least from Jonah's perspective, why on earth would, would this message have any have any staying power in this giant city of people who don't believe like we do anyway. So probably from Jonah's perspective, for God to ask him to travel all the way to, to Nineveh, to this power-broken society, to say something to them that they probably already knew about themselves, that other people's tribal gods would find their behavior and culture wick, wicked or outside of the bounds of other religious traditions, specifically for our text, the, the Jewish religious way, that wouldn't have probably, in Jonah's mind, been a huge surprise to, the, to those in Nineveh or interesting. In other words, Jonah is probably hearing this, this message from God to go to Nineveh, and he's probably thinking to himself, why? What is the point? I'm one voice in one of the biggest, if not the biggest city in that time. Nobody's going to listen to me. And even if they do, I'm not going to tell them anything that they don't already know. But as we're going to learn even more at the end of the story, as it sort of offers the great reveal when Jonah says what he's really feeling, not only do we learn that, that, that Jonah didn't want to go 
And not only was there a part of Jonah that probably did think that this was sort of a waste of his time, but we learn later that apparently Jonah did have this sort of nagging fear that, that maybe, just maybe, the people of Nineveh were actually going to listen and maybe would change their ways, which would then possibly change how God would interact with them as an empire, which made Jonah really uncomfortable. Nothing, in fact, could be further from what Jonah wanted to see happen because if they changed their ways and God did not destroy them, how would, how would the, peop, the Hebrew people receive Jonah back in when they found out that he was the one who relayed the message that if they did not repent, then their God was going to execute judgment on them? Jonah, in other words, didn't want to be the one responsible for the Assyrians not receiving the punishment that the broader world thought it was due them because of their violence and their warring kingdom. Jonah wants nothing to do with this plan that God has. So he does what humans do. He goes the opposite direction. We're told that he goes down to Joppa and buys a ticket to get on a ship that's heading to Tarshish. Say Tarshish five times fast. And on the way there, they're hit with this insane storm. And Jonah's plan to essentially escape to Mexico, right? To get out from under the jurisdiction of the, the government that's going after him. He thinks he's going to run from God, from Israel's God and make it to this other land where maybe Israel's God doesn't have as much jurisdiction. And on the way, he gets caught, and God sends this crazy storm. And this wild thing happens in the text, and it's really easy to miss, but these sailors, they're, they're, they're trying their best to to save the ship, then they find that, that, that Jonah's asleep underneath, and they kind of have this, this sort of trial of Jonah. They cast lots, they figure out that, that he's the one to, to bear the responsibility for the storm. He explains himself and essentially tells them, the only way you're going to get out of this is if you throw me overboard. And the men on the ship, they don't want to do that, so they try to, to get the ship to shore, and when they can't, all of a sudden, the language in the text shifts. They're no longer praying to their lower G gods that, that they begin speaking to, but they begin to speak to what the text would describe as the Lord or Yahweh. In other words, they begin to pray to Jonah's God, to Israel's God, and they essentially apologize for what, the, for what they're about to do. And then they throw Jonah overboard, and the storm stops, just as Jonah said it would. And you'd think that Jonah would, would drown, and the story would be over here. But it, it doesn't, and this sort of fantastical thing happens, and a giant fish, we're told, swallows Jonah up, and he stays in the belly of this fish for three days, where he has a front row seat to the presence of God 
in the belly. And he prays and he meditates and he writes that beautiful poetic reflection that, that Dave read as our opening reading this morning from chapter two. And, and here's where we, where we see this really fascinating vision of God begin to emerge. Because God, who probably even Jonah would have imagined at this point would be absolutely furious with him and was just going to let him drown and the story was just going to kind of be done. I think that's what Jonah expected. But instead, for whatever reason, perhaps because the book of Jonah's description of the divine is not of the, the ultimate punisher or the the one to bring retributive justice on humanity, but instead of creator and parent, perhaps because of this, we see God who's not angry with Jonah, but instead basically puts him into timeout for three days and says, think about your life, Jonah, and think about what you're doing. Take a minute and, and bring it down a notch. And God, instead of letting Jonah just die, decides to, to make this a teaching experience for him. And by the end of chapter two, we're told that after Jonah offers this long pro poetic prayerful meditation that the, the, the fish spits him out onto dry land, and then chapter three picks up in the following way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So this time Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk. And he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. And everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything, they shall not feed nor shall they drink water, human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands, who knows? God may relent and change God's mind. God may turn from God's fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? 
This is why I fled to Tarshish in the beginning, for I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? And then Jonah went out from the city. He sat down east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush, made it to, to cover up over Jonah, to give shade over his head, to save him from his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. God said, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. The Lord said, you were concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be more concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? And let's not forget about all the animals. I think it's hard to get to the end of Jonah and to not... See and hear somebody who got their schadenfreude taken away. It's almost as though Jonah was looking forward to delighting in the destruction of his enemy. And then we're told that even after God declares that God has changed God's mind, Jonah finds a spot on a hill nearby and sets up camp to watch and see what's going to happen. Jonah has essentially given the worst sermon of his life as he kind of waltzed through Nineveh one day's journey into a city that would have taken three days to get through. And the people respond. First, it's a, it's a, it's a movement of the, of the people who hear Jonah's message, and then it makes its way all the way up the leadership to the king, and the king decrees an entire period of fasting and prayer and repentance for the people of Nineveh, and all the while Jonah is like, you've got to be kidding me. Really, God? They're going to repent from that? That half-hearted, not even half-hearted attempt or essentially checking off the box so that at least I could say I did what you told me to do so that I can go home. And to that, the people respond with radical repentance. Now, I, I'm of the 
I'm, I'm of the, the agreement with those scholars that, that read the book of Jonah, especially as you read it in ancient Hebrew and think that it's meant to be a little bit comic. It's meant to, to offer some hyperbole. It's, it's sort of putting up there this caricature of the way humans act, right? And I think that, I think that a, a story like this one right now in our world and in a, our own country that's so divided, right, along political, cultural, ideological, religious lines, the whole, the whole underlying point of the narrative is that God loves the Ninevites. God loves those people, and God doesn't want harm to come upon them any more than God wants harm to come upon any human beings. The whole point is that God is distinctly not quite like us, and that God never experiences delight at the misfortune of anyone. And that we, in our own desire and aim to embrace the way of God in the world, something that that we need to be very careful of as a people of the Christ. Jonah really wanted to see Israel's enemies pay. He wanted a front row seat on that hill and, and, and was hoping that, that they were going to receive the destruction that God had initially said was coming. And Jonah, he... he the, the irony here, of course, is that Jonah himself has been, from the beginning of the story, completely insubordinate. He works for God. He's a prophet. That's his vocation. God gives him a direct, a direct command to go to Nineveh and to, to offer this proclamation, and he does the exact opposite. It winds him up in the the raging sea in which he should have drowned, but God saves him, gives him another chance. And after God gives Jonah another chance, Jonah is angry that God gives the Ninevites another chance. And how often do we fall prey to the exact same thing? We're so accepting and so grateful for God's grace in our lives and for forgiveness and for second chances. But sometimes when it gets offered to other people, well, hang on, right? Where's justice? Or where is, where is what that person deserves? And sometimes I just wonder if, if God's calling us to take a, step back, take a step back and to look at ourselves with honesty and to realize that regardless of, of how, how angry we may be across divides and in all of these different ways as the human family today, God is still one parent to one human race and one human people and God wants us to find a way forward to recognize that we all live on the same spinning ball of dirt and that what hurts that person hurts all of us and what brings goodness can bring goodness to all of us and that we're all intricately tied together in this incredible web of humanity and to divide us up or to imagine somehow that we're siloed somewhere else on some island is absurd. 
the Ninevites, they, they ultimately are part of the human family. The Israelites are part of the human family. We in this country, with our different political persuasions, we're still all part of the human family. And maybe one of the, the beautiful works of mosaic art that God is calling us to begin to build right now, even though we're still feeling as though we're in the wilderness, is what are these sort of ways that we can transcend all of these differences right now and create, create works of beauty that that are transforming the ways that we see ourselves as other or the ways that we wish harm on those different than us? What are these ways, what, 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 how, can, how can we be agents of shalom, of beauty, of peace? And how can we be people who are, who are not just building bigger walls and sort of tribe, building a, a, a more and more intense tribal identity, pushing people out and further defining our own, but, but how can we begin to be a people who, who recognize that, yeah, we're, we're different and we don't agree on everything, but you are still my sibling and God is still our parent and we're still called to love each other and called to find ways to reach and to extend that arm of, of fellowship even when it's hard, even when we don't want to do it. And to look those Jonas in our lives, whatever side of whatever aisle they may find themselves and say, followers of Christ cannot, we cannot ever delight in the misfortune of others. And if we find ourselves doing that, then we need to call ourselves to a place of repentance. God loves the whole world. God loves you, God loves me. God wants the best for all of us, even the people that it's hard for us humans to, to see that for. But, but God is parent. So may we embody that in our lives in these weeks ahead of us, in this year ahead of us, in this time ahead of us, and maybe be willing, even in the midst of the division, to begin to build beautiful bridges and beautiful ways to... to to bring about and to show that we're all human together on this planet. We're all in need of love and grace and forgiveness and new starts. Maybe so in the name of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.